Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f do you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f put that in. I don't So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he's out. He's out. He's out. Yes, sir. is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Dean is mad. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Coming at you another Saturday morning right here on the MTR Radio Network. This is the Passball Show brought to you by JohnPLE.com. ton of different things to get into today. I got an interview with Bill Naharadny. He was a uh, catcher for several different teams through the better part of the 70s and the early 80s. And I want to get into a bunch of different things going on in Major League Baseball. Yeah, we're going to touch on the pennant races and you know, what teams are doing what or, you know, where they're going to be at this point in time and, you know, how the pennant raises should end up being looking. Um, you know, if you heard me a couple of weeks ago, I kind of ruled the New York Yankees out of it. They responded by winning three out of four after that and are in a position where they could certainly gain some ground on a lot of the other teams in major, you know, in the American League, particularly the American League East. But the first thing I want to jump into is something that kind of gets me thinking a lot. And I spent a lot of time thinking about this because we, we live in the steroids era. We live in the era of Major League Baseball where uh, all the players that played now are being judged. And, you know, the Baseball Hall of Fame is so sacred. And, you know, all the records in Major League Baseball are so sacred. And how dare players use performance-enhancing drugs to give themselves an advantage. And if you know me, if you followed me and gotten my opinions on the steroid era in Major League Baseball, I've said this. Listen, players have done you know, anything they can to get a distinct advantage to try to be better than the other guy. And you know, a lot of people don't relate to the little guy, the guy that's maybe good enough to be a minor league player and make $20,000 a year. But using steroids gets them to a point where they can make a million dollars a year. Nobody really looks at it from that way. But the bottom line is every year you know, the players are going to be judged now. We got the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. We got the writers, the Baseball Writers Association of America, who every year are going to try to make a stand of what players are Hall of Fame worthy and what players aren't, and now have to factor in whether they did steroids or not. No baseball writer is going to willingly vote a player in, or at least the majority of writers are not going to vote a player in if they think that they were doing performance-enhancing drugs throughout their career. As you saw with the voting last year, guys like Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens getting 30-something percent. 
and you know some players that there was less suspicion about got you know even more more consideration and then there was plenty of baseball writers that say listen I think they're all dirty I'm not going to vote for anybody and obviously Craig Biggio who got the most votes of anybody Mike Piazza Jeff Bagwell well none of those guys were were inducted this past season now, obviously, next year, there's a, there's a new cast of characters. There's a new setup of players that are going to be on the ballot for the first time, led by Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox and Frank Thomas. Now, are they going to get the same treatment as the players that were, were, were given in this past year? Obviously, what was significant about the 2013 Baseball Writers Association, you know, the Hall of Fame votes, the whole thing, was the fact that there were so many players and so many great and immortal type of players that were linked to performance-enhancing drugs and steroids. And, you know, the writers, of course, made the stand. They didn't put Bonds in. They didn't put Roger Clemens in. Uh, they didn't put Sammy Sosa or Mark McGuire or Rafael Palmero or, you know, the guys that were holdovers from years prior in and ended up making a stand by not electing anybody. Now you look at it with Glavin and Smoltz and Frank Thomas. Could Frank Thomas be put in the same category as potentially a Jeff Bagwell or a Mike Piazza? Guy, guys who, you know, there was never any evidence that they were using performance-enhancing drugs, but there were big sluggers who played in a time where a lot of guys were using performance-enhancing drugs. Yeah, listen, it makes a, it make a good point there. But, you know, you know, what about Tom Glavin? And what about Greg Maddox? Greg Maddox wins 353 games in his career. Phenomenal career, certainly Hall of Fame numbers. The 15-plus wins over the X amount of seasons that he has makes him a Hall of Fame player. Now, did he not do performance-enhancing drugs? Well, listen, there's no proof that he didn't. There's no proof that he did either. And this is a situation where I'm very intrigued to see what's going to happen this year with Greg Maddox and with Tom Glavin, who you expect both to be Hall of Famers. They both are, had Hall of Fame careers. And probably it didn't have their careers tarnished by steroids. But, you know, with the drug testing in Major League Baseball right now, we're in a better position to determine what players are using and which are not. Obviously, those who, who test are users or fail to test are users. But, you know, with the Biogenesis anti-aging clinic closing down and being raided, players who never failed the drug test are being caught purchasing performance-enhancing drugs. It's likely that other such clinics exist throughout the country. And other players are being implicated in similar fashions. But unless players from the 90s and early 2000s want to start ratting at each other, there's no evidence to prove that X player did and X player didn't. So you have a generation that's prior to this so-called steroid you know, generation. You got players like Jose Canseco who played you know, in the 80s. Now, how many players were using steroids when Jose Canseco played? You could ask him. He'll tell you. Do you know if you're going to believe the answer or not? I don't know. But you got to tell me that players were using steroids in the 80s and maybe even as far back as the 1970s. So you have Hall of Fame careers that have been established, that have been set. The, the players got their plaques. They've been honored already. What are we going to do when we find out that that player, there was a player or two or maybe even three that used performance-enhancing drugs throughout their career? I mean, I'd like to see the performance-enhancing drugs gradually taken out of the game. But I understand it's not going to happen so easy. You know, I've stated all along that the amount of money that these players make allow them to use the best doctors who use the best chemicals in turn. The players who are on PEDs simply have to take the correct doses, dosages, and are going to pass any test. The people are too naive when they think the process of eliminating these drugs is going to be so simple. How, how about the player that's played so long and never got caught? 
You know, does he get a free pass while all the players who have been implicated deserve to take all the wrath? The Alex Rodriguez's of the world are the ones that are going to have to have their images tarnished to be treated so poorly. But how about players that made it through their entire career without anything ever coming up and end up in the Hall of Fame, the whole thing? I'm not going to name players that I think are in the Hall of Fame that may have used steroids because it's just hearsay. It's not fair for me to say that. There could be as many as three, and there could be even more. So what happens if this ever comes out? What happens if one of these players are on their deathbed, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, about to die and say, listen, I want to spill the beans. I want to tell the truth. I want to say that I did steroids over my career. And I think what's happening to a lot of these players that are being taken out of, you know, their names are being taken out of the baseball record books, or at least they want to, is unfair. Somebody may do that. And then what happens? Do you all of a sudden have to reevaluate the Hall of Fame process? Are you going to kick players out that are in that are in the Hall of Fame that happened to use steroids and didn't tell you until, you know, 30 years later? Listen, I think it's a situation and I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to the players that aren't using performance enhancing drugs, but it's also not fair to the players that are being implicated and the ones that have gotten caught. Now, you know, a lot of them you say, listen, they got caught. They didn't admit to it. They're only they're only telling you they're sorry because they got caught. I get that. But please stop telling me that every player who has never been implicated or doesn't have that big body type that doesn't look like a bodybuilder is clean and has the right to criticize everybody that's been caught before. You know, there's so many different scenarios. There's certain cases people are using certain things for injuries and stuff like that. And it doesn't make it right. But I'm just telling you this thought that we're going to just clean up the game of baseball and make it out to be something that it wasn't before that all of a sudden everybody's going to come clean, you know, to me just is, is, is too much. And I, I just don't think it's ever going to happen. And I just think that you know, rather than focus on the players that we have caught, that have been caught by Major League Baseball or have been outed, you know, let's, let's just let the game go on and judge players based on what they did over the course of their career. You know, got one guy that certainly has his place in the Baseball Hall of Fame discussion. Is a guy that retired last year. I don't think he's announced his retirement officially, but, you know, he's not playing this year. He's probably not going to return after appearing for his last game for the Baltimore Orioles in 2012. And I'm talking about Jim Tomey. And Jim Tomey has put up some phenomenal, phenomenal numbers for his career. He ranks as one of the quietest run producers in the history of Major League Baseball. Some of it has to do with his career being in the height of the steroids era. And one is the simple assumption that he did steroids just because of the era that he played in. And another would give him the benefit of the doubt because he was never implicated. I think there's two sides of this argument, but let's take a second to look at Jim Tomey's baseball career. He played 22 seasons in a Major League Baseball from 1991 to 2012, from the Indians in 91 to 2002, and again in 2011, the Phillies from 2003 to 2005 and 2012, the White Sox from 2006 to 2009, the Los Angeles Dodgers in 2009, the Minnesota Twins in 2010 and 2011, and the Baltimore Orioles in 2012. He played in the postseason for the Indians in 95 through 99, 2001. And the White Sox in 2008, the Twins in 2009, and the Orioles, of course, last year in 2012. Jim Tomey ranks seventh all-time in Major League Baseball history with 612 career home runs. His 1,699 career RBIs ranked 24th. He's drawn the seventh most walks in the history of Major League Baseball. He ranks second all-time in, strike, in time striking out. He has the 24th highest slugging percentage at 554, the 20th highest OPS at 956. 
There are few people that feel, you know, if any, that can feel that these are not Hall of Fame worthy numbers. What happens to the naysayers? What do they say about Jim Tomey? The first thing they'll say is that he, he po- he'll point to the time that he played in Cleveland with the Indians, where he was teammates with Manny Ramirez, Albert Bell, and a handful of other players who may or may not have used performance-enhancing drugs. Tomey, when he came up in the early part of the 90s with the Cleveland Indians, was a big guy. Got a little bigger as his career went on. And some may want to question whether he was using performance-enhancing drugs. His best seasons came between 96 to 2003, which was considered the height of the steroids era. You throw in the fact that the general public takes a guilty until proven innocent approach, you could say Tommy's a ringer for using steroids. But what if he's not? There are never any failed drug tests or suspicious activity involving Jim Tommy. As his career went on, he never suffered any of those steroid type of injuries that we, we always point to certain players when they end up getting hurt. You know, Tommy also continued to produce through 2008. And what's significant about that is drug testing in Major League Baseball was implemented through, you know, after the anonymous test in the 2003 season. So he stayed with very consistent numbers up until 2008 when he simply got older. 23 home runs in 2009, 25 in 2010. I think you got to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. I think Frank Thomas being on this year's ballot coming up, like I just mentioned before, is going to show how much consideration a guy like Tommy will be given. I think Thomas can receive 60% of the vote, even higher, perhaps enough to get elected this year. Now, people will have their doubts. The writers don't want to be the ones to uh, put the first player, if there hasn't been one already, into the Hall of Fame that used performance-enhancing drugs. So I think they want to be guarded with this. So a guy like Frank Thomas, I think, deserves more than 50% of the vote, perhaps as high as 75. Now, if Thomas ends up being in the Hall of Fame, i got to tell you one thing. There's no question that if... Frank Thomas is in the Hall of Fame when Jim Tomey is eligible, his first year in eligibility. He should be going in on the first ballot. But once again, this is John Pielli in the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. What we're going to do is our, take our first break of the day. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. Hey, everyone. This is Joe Lamort from ADD Sports Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. We're on 24-7. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at MTR Radio. Don't forget to tap that app in the Android market and iPhone app store. Search MTR Radio on your handheld device. Tap that app. Everybody's doing it. (laughs) MTR Radio. Saber Metrics. Created by computer geeks that think they're better than you. Saber Metrics. All these numbers make them seem smart and you stupid. Saber Metrics. I know more than you. Saber Metrics. Seldomly makes baseball points that cannot be proven using conventional stats. Jumpy Ellie's basketball show. 
Yeah, welcome back. John Pielli, TR Radio Network. What we're going to do is I'm going to play an interview I recorded with former Major League catcher Bill Naharadny. And Bill, of course, I had a chance to meet him at the best um, uh, you know, college scholarship awards banquet and golf outing. And, you know, he's a, he's a guy that certainly uh, can make a lot of uh, comparisons to what a lot of the kids that, you know, end up getting the scholarships or eligible for the scholarships end up having to go through. And Bill, you know, talks about his time as a as a uh, jail guard after his playing career. And, you know, he got in a lot of interesting things. He played in the uh, you know, 1970s and 1980s for the Phillies, for the White Sox, for the Indians, for the Braves. Uh, for the Tigers and the Mariners. I believe I got all the teams right. But, you know, we're going to get into this interview with former Major League catcher Bill Naharadny. So I hope you enjoy it. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League catcher Bill Naharadny. Bill, what's going on, man? Oh, not too much. Everything's going good. Hey, listen, uh, before we get into your playing career, uh, you obviously were at, were at the best charity uh, awards banquet. You know, everything it does for the kids with scholarships for college and stuff like that. Um, just start out by telling a little bit about what it means to you, and you know what uh, you know, you know how you feel about the whole thing. Sure. When Billy asked me to come, you know, I thought it was just another charity event, which is, is nice. You know, I do them now and then, but uh, I went there and I was I was just uh, overwhelmed with what I saw and the kids that were getting scholarships and what the uh, what the, what best represents and. Uh, I was lucky enough, even at the end of the banquet, which was fantastic, uh, Billy stopped and showed me the uh, school, you know, one of the schools, and then the college was across. And I saw the little Racing in down 100 mountain switchbacks requires nerves. It was just an uh, unbelievable experience. It was breathtaking. Uh, I've never seen anything like it. I, it choked me up big time. What a charity. Yeah, no question about it. And I'll tell you really what it does. You know, I mean, you know, the, you know, you talk about kids that are, you know, affected with all different backgrounds, some some positive, some not so good. And the fact that, you know, this organization steps up and, you know, allow these, allows these kids to get a proper education, I think it's it's phenomenal. Absolutely. I worked at the jail after I loved baseball for about eight years in the juvenile detention center, matter of fact. I figured, well, I can give back a little bit and help some kids out and, I saw kids that didn't have anything like this, kids with no guidance, uh, kids who's destroyed their lives and have no intention of fixing it up. They can't see beyond their little uh, area where they live. Their dreams are so small, you know, that they really they don't comprehend how to get ahead at all, you know, and this charity is... Uh, it's, it's an incredible charity. It addresses exactly what you see in the jails, you know. And it, to me, it was overwhelming. That's why it was so breathtaking. I guess I should have went into that a little bit more. But, you know, that, that working at the jail and seeing somebody hit her dead on the head. You know, Billy was right on it with that charity. Yeah, I tell you. And, you have, of course, you had the opportunity after your playing career to be, you know, to, to work for, you know, the, the, the jails and stuff like that. Um, you know, is, is that, is that really what kind of, you know, allowed it to hit home the most for you? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there was a boy who killed a police officer. There was another one who stabbed his, uh, aunt about 15 times. And, uh, I'd sit by the door for days on end. That would be my job sometime is to sit there to make sure they didn't commit suicide. And having a baseball background, you know, we could talk for hours about baseball and keep the kids' mind busy. I mean, that's just a few, you know. And uh, to, to see kids that are on the wrong track, 
to be as successful as these kids are, it's, it is really cool. <laughs> Now, I tell you, it's amazing what it ends up doing. And of course, Bill, you, you know, you obviously had a, you know, a, a decent major league career. You came up, you know, you played, got a chance to play for several different teams. Now, you know, tell us a little bit about what it felt like, you know, we were drafted in 1972 in a sixth round by the Philadelphia Phillies. Yes, sir. Uh, well, you know, I started out, I didn't have a lot starting out. My dad was a great dad. He gave everything I needed. You know, he, he got, finally got a really good job as a garbage man for the city of uh, Hamtramck, Michigan. He always supported me in baseball. He always supported me in school. He uh, was super. My mom was the same way. Uh, when I got a chance, I was drafted in six. I went to junior college. Dick Roach, who's now assistant general manager of Milwaukee Brewers, happened to be the baseball coach at St. Clair Community College. He gave me uh, a chance to play uh, college ball, which I was very lucky and very successful. Made All-American, and then I was drafted by the Phillies in the sixth round. Um, without him, I would have never been able to go to college, so I caught a break on the way, too. And uh, anyway, I, I signed with the Phillies, um, played with Philadelphia, Chicago, Atlanta, Cleveland, Detroit, Seattle from 72 to 85. I was lucky enough to be chosen as rookie, tops rookie catcher of the year in 1978. I played a long time before that, but never had enough at bats to qualify. And uh, it was a dream for me to come true every day. It was like Disney World out on that field. I'd go out there and I'd just look at the scoreboard, look at the people. And one of the biggest things, my first home run was kind of funny, too, because in Chicago they shoot off fireworks, you know, when someone hits a home run. I'm around second base and I hear boom, 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 man, I twitched, you know, and it was, uh, you know, the shot was off for me, which, you know, also was kind of. Uh, <laughs> devastating to me, you know, that, you know, this is something I did. There's 30,000 people in the stands. I just hit a home run. You know, there's uh, so many thrills I couldn't even, you know, explain. It's just uh, a dream come true for me, and I was very fortunate, very lucky, and very blessed. No, absolutely, man. Once again, this is John Piala, I'm here with former major league catcher Bill Naharadny. Now, you know, let's take us back to the 1978 season. You know, of course, that was really your first chance to play. Of course, you were you know, you, you know, you're selected as a, you know, as an all-star rookie that year with, uh, with the White Sox. Uh, Bob Lemon was the manager. Larry Doby ends up taking over. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, you know, how that 1978 season went and what it felt like to be, you know, a pseudo-regular on a Major League Baseball team. It was unbelievable. In fact, we were looking at a, a, a me and my daughter and my son were looking at a thing and it was like May 20th or something and it was, uh, Jet Lemon hitting uh, number one average. I was hitting 308 second, and Bobby Bonds was right below me. And uh, I don't know. It was just a dream come true. You know, I can remember picking off Carl Yastrzemski at first base on national TV uh, twice in one ball game. And when he came up to the bat, he had some choice words for me, which we both laughed. You know, and, uh, it was just phenomenal. And that. Uh, 78 top rookie catcher of the year was chosen by the players. So, obviously, not only I played pretty well, but I uh, made a lot of friends on the way also. No, absolutely, man. And I tell you, you know, you have you had a chance, you know, to be the the everyday catcher. Were you were were you more into your, the defensive side of, of of being behind the plate, or were you as concerned just as much as being a a productive offensive player? I really had no problem hitting uh, coming. From college, I was All-American third baseman. So my catching to me was uh, priceless. I mean, the, the work that it took to get to that point was just phenomenal. I can remember my first uh, spring training 
when I go to Andy Semenek and I show him, I said, someone left a catcher's glove in your in my locker. He says, nope, you're a catcher. See you tomorrow at 9 o'clock in the batting cages. So I go back into the batting cages, and here's Andy, and he's got a garbage can full of baseballs. He takes my glove away, gives me a chest protector and shin guards, cranks it up to 90 miles an hour as the ball bounces five feet in front of me. I'm supposed to block him. I got my mask, chest protector, and shin guards. No blood. <laughs> so you got to block him with your chest, and you know. I keep getting hit on the forearms. I go, Andy, I said, man, my arms are swollen up. I don't know if I want to do this. He says, oh, don't worry. Six weeks from now, they'll get hit. You won't even feel it. And you know what? He was right. The twitching went away. I started a week ago. Going <laughs> nah, it's, it's pretty interesting. You know, you look at it and, you know, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of players, you know, become catchers and end up switching other positions. What, what, was it really that much of a shock when you, when you had it, when, when you were asked to make the switch? No, not really, because I was like that catch once in a while in high school, once in a while in college. Never really thought of being a catcher. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be drafted by uh, the Phillies with uh, Tony Lucadello, and Tony Lucadello is a Hall of Fame scout. And what he saw was a catcher in me, and, you know, what can I say? You know, I'm a little guy out of Hamtramck and you know, Michigan, and he tells me to be a catcher. He goes, yes, sir. And you, you go behind the plate and catch. That's, it was no questions asked. No, absolutely. Once again, this is John Pielli. I'm here with, we're with Bill Narodny. Now, Bill, you know, you, you had some very good years in the minor leagues, though, you know, a better part of the 70s up until really 77 and, of course, 83 again with, you know, the Detroit Tigers-Evansville team. You know, w- w- was there anything in your mind that you felt was the reason why the power numbers that you hit for didn't translate to the major leagues? Well, there was more to it than that, and I have no excuses. I went to uh, Chicago. And uh, first year in the big leagues, and I'm tearing it up the first month and a half or so. And I threw to second base, and elbow popped. It really popped. I mean, it, it went ding, ding, you know, like you hit your elbow on a coffee table. And I continued to play every day. They knew, you know, my elbow was messed up, but, you know, I was doing pretty well. And I didn't have a tremendous season, but before that, it was like taking candy from a baby. But after that, you become a regular player, you know, and it wasn't as easy as it was before that. Uh, I went to, uh, I got traded to Atlanta, and I had the surgery right after the first season, and uh, it took a while to get better, but uh, <laughs> right at the end of my career, it started to feel real good again, but it was too late, you know, I was already too old. Now, I tell you, what I really respect about you, Bill, is that, you know, the fact that, you know, you played for as long as you did, and you really, really, to this day, just have it kind of come out of you how much you just love the game of baseball and love the opportunity that you got and you really see what a lot of you know a lot of players like nowadays just kind of look like they almost take it for granted i'll tell you one thing that i know for a fact is true about you is you never took it for granted one bit you couldn't you know back in my day you worked hard there was no you didn't worry we didn't make that much money back then i mean we just went out there to play ball we love to play ball and I'll tell you what, if it, I can remember one time in Yankee Stadium, I'm changing a little bit, but it kind of hits the same thing. Uh, and here I am catching against the Yankees to start the sprinkle. Uh, George uh, Steinbrenner is down below, and uh, he's talking with Billy Martin on the edge of the dugout, and Bucky Dent hits a little pop-up, foul ball, and it's going towards the dugout. So I'm running, and of course, when you're, you know, you play baseball, you'll dive into a wall for a baseball. So I dive, and I slide like 20 feet. And I slide halfway into the Yankee dugout, and the ball winds up in my glove. I still can't believe it to this day. 
And I look up, and Billy Martin is like two feet from me, and Steinbrenner is about two feet the other direction, and they both go, great play. Made me feel pretty good. I didn't like them until that day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, uh, you know, a couple, couple words, and then your opinion changes right away, right? Oh, yeah. You know, I mean, it's just you see the hard side of people, and then when you do do something good, even though you're on the other team, you're halfway in your dugout, you still get a reaction from people that say, you know, these people really love baseball. You know, they want to win, they want to play hard, but they also appreciate good, hard baseball. And, you know, when, when you look at a person like that, the whole picture changes. No, absolutely, man. Of course, uh, you know, the shirt that you wore to the to the best banquet, you had a, a list of all the teams that you played for in the years, from the Phillies, the White Sox, the Braves, the Indians, Tigers, and Mariners. Was there any particular team that you played for that you, you, you enjoyed being with that organization more than another? I loved all of them. Every day was just great. I got along with all my teammates, really never had any trouble. Um, the coaching was great. Chicago was a little bit tough because we went through so many managers. Uh, Bob Lemon, Larry Doby, Don Kessinger, Tony LaRusso. Um, if I think more, I could probably come up with more of them. But uh, there were so many managers that it was tough. You never knew you were going to be playing for the next day. And that was a little tough. I really enjoyed playing for Bobby Cox, you know, with the Braves. And uh, Del Crandall was excellent. Um it was just a dream come true. Every it didn't matter, you know. You still got to play against the Detroit Tigers, who were my favorite team, and later on I got to play for them and stay with my parents in, in Hancramick, Michigan, when I was playing with them. You know, I mean, there are so many good things about every place. My daughter was born when I was with the Cleveland Indians, which was one of my favorites too. So it's uh, it's really hard to call because every year was great. Even the minor leagues was great. And in all, all honesty, I had just as much fun playing baseball in minor leagues as the big leagues. <laughs> Yeah, I tell you, you know, you look at, you know, a lot of players that get a chance to play as long as as you did. And, you know, you, you probably have more memorable seasons, you know, you, the, those full seasons you had in the minor leagues. Now, is it, I, now you mentioned the, the amount of different managers that you that you played for, you know, playing for a guy like Tony La Russa, playing for, you know, uh, you know, Bob Lemon. Was there any manager in particular, you know, Bobby Cox? Was there any particular manager that you looked at and you're like, wow. It, it's it's awesome to get a chance to play for this guy. Bobby Cox was just unbelievable. One of a kind, a real, uh, I hate to put it this way, real man's man baseball. Uh, he played very hard. He expected his players to be very hard, you know, and, uh, um, you know, that he was fun to play for. Danny Ozark with the Phillies. I didn't get a chance to play for him too much, but I had a chance to play for him in spring training and, I was green. I didn't really know that much, and I came to spring training my first year, and um, Danny Ozark, he, uh, he says, okay, guys, you know, let's get a lap around the field. Get a little spell. Said he could do a lap. I ran around the field, you know, as hard as I could, and, uh, you know, beat everybody by about half a baseball field, and uh, he says to me, uh, he called me, and he says, uh, what are you doing? I says, well, you told me to run. I'm going to run. He says, well, you know, uh, you're not trying to embarrass the rest of the players, are you? And I said, Mr. Grozer, you guys lost over 100 games last year. I'm at 18, remember, you know. And, uh, you know, you guys were the worst team in baseball. And, uh, you know, when my manager tells me to run, I run. Well, guess what? The whole team ran the next day. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess you can't argue with honesty, you know. So, but, yeah, there was, you have good times and, and, and really not that many bad times. You know, when the team is struggling, 
uh, you can feel the stress from your manager and everything else, but I never really played for anybody that I really disliked. Man, I tell you, you know, that 1976 Philly team ends up winning over 100 games and wins the uh, NL East. So, uh, you know, maybe maybe there was a little bit of impact of your, you know, your hustling around the field that time. Maybe uh, maybe led the team to some uh, some some better times. Yeah, I think it was. I think that that happened in '72 or '73. I can't remember the exact year. Might have been spring of '73, and and that's when you know I kind of lost a lot of games last year. Tell me to run, I'm going to run. <laughs> that's awesome, man. Now I tell you, you know, you know, you have that moment in 1979. You hit the two home runs in the same game. Uh, how much of a memory is that to you? And how how you know can can you recap that moment? Yeah, Kansas City, and Kansas City had a pretty darn good team back then, and uh, I think there was a wind blowing in, too, and I thought I heard the announcer say, I don't think anybody's going to hit one out today, and, you know, you could hear radios going all over the place, and I hit it off, I think, Busby, I think. I can't remember who it was, but uh, first home run, and then uh, later on in the ballgame, hit another one. What a thrill. I felt like Babe Ruth. <laughs> All right, Bill, listen, I want to thank you for having some time today. And listen, best of luck, and, man, hope to speak to you again sometime in the near future. Anytime, sir. Just give me a holler. So I hope you guys enjoyed that spot there. Bill Naharadney, a former catcher with several different teams. Of course, he ended up making the transition to catching, um, you know, after he was drafted. He was a third baseman. So, you know, definitely a lot of good things to get into there. What we're going to do is we're going to take our next break of this hour, be back with a strong finish right here in the Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, America's radio station. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. In your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station, MTR. I'm Karen Siaska-Zeltman from Italian Hour. When my car needs service, I take it to Jonathan's Complete Car Care. Jonathan's Complete Car Care is the best for auto repairs, tires, diagnostics, and tune-ups. You can depend on Jonathan's for the best service at prices you can afford. Give Jonathan's Complete Car Care a call. 609-601-6460. They work hard to give you the service you need. Jonathan's Complete Car Care works with many vehicles, including Mercedes-Benz, BMW, Volvo, Volkswagen, and Audi. Make Jonathan's Complete Car Care the company you keep. 609-601-6460. Call today for a free estimate or visit. Find us on the web at jonathanscompletecarcare.com and like us on Facebook and find us on Twitter. Listening to MTR Radio, powered by MTRmedia.com. Tune in to Jumpy 
John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Lots of stuff to get into in regards to Major League Baseball. We started out by talking a little bit about the performance-enhancing drugs. We talked about Jim Tolmey and his place in baseball history. And I do want to just throw a little reminder over what the Major League Baseball draft order would be if the season ended uh, two days ago. So this month of September started. Teams obviously competing for a playoff spot and division race have made some adjustments before going for it. Justin Morneau goes from the Twins to the Pirates. Michael Young goes to the Dodgers at the last minute of August 31st. You know, and you know now a lot of other teams are trying to sit there and say, all right, well, where are we going to be next year? We obviously know one of the most really less talked about drafts in all professional sports involves the Major League Baseball player draft, which happens every year during the season, which is a sign that you know the significance of the players drafting isn't always a, isn't up there with the other sports. It's not with the M- NBA. Obviously, is not up there with the NFL. Now, there's a handful of teams that would love to have a top five pick, maybe a top ten pick. I think the the impact of having finishing what well, one of the ten worst records it is has changed in Major League Baseball because now you can go out there in free agency and not lose your first round draft choice if you end up signing a, a type A or a top free agent. But the way things are set up now, I think it's it, it's almost inevitable that the Houston Astros, for the third year in a row, are going to have the number one overall pick in the draft. And, of course, they took Carlos Correa, the shortstop, a couple years ago. And this past season, they took Mark Appel, the number one pitching uh, possibility coming out of college out of Stanford. Now they're going to have another chance, it looks like, with you know a five- or six-game lead they have in regards to the worst record in Major League Baseball. So there are the Astros, the team that's going to have probably the second-worst record and finish with the number two overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft the next year is obviously going to be the Miami Marlins. The Marlins gutted their team after last season, made trades of guys like Jose Reyes and uh, you know Hanley Ramirez the year before, ended up gutting their team completely, and there's no surprise that they have the second-worst record in baseball. In fact, uh, you know really, they, they seem to be the only team that could give the Astros a, ch- a shot at maybe overtaking them for the worst record in Major League Baseball. But as you move forward here, you see a couple surprises. And, you know, a couple teams ended up doing a little bit better than I anticipated. And one team that right now has the third worst record in Major League Baseball and is fighting with their crosstown and northern rivals, and that's the Chicago White Sox. The, the White Sox struggles have been a bit of a surprise considering what they did last season, the year that they had last year under first-year manager Robin Ventura. But Paul Canerco is getting old. Their pitching has not been as good as it was last year. They've obviously made some moves, trading guys like Alex Rios. And you know the loss of A.J. Pruszynski obviously had a big impact on their team, one that's keeping them 20-something games over 500, and in a situation where they are the worst team in the American League. And I, I didn't predict that coming in. I didn't predict the White Sox to uh, do better than they did last year. But I certainly thought a 500 finish was very reasonable. But the White Sox right now, if the season ended today, would have the third overall pick in next year's players' draft. The team that's, of course, on the the other side 
and that's the Chicago Cubs. We're a team that were expected to struggle this year. And the unfortunate thing with the Chicago Cubs is they may get a little worse before they get better. One of the things that General Manager Jed Hoyer and President Theo Epstein have done this year, they've gone out there and they've moved a lot of players. Alfonso Soriano, uh, you look at you know, the trade of him. You know, even guys like Scott Hairston, uh, Matt Garza was traded, Scott Feldman was traded, and we're going to talk about Scott Feldman in a little bit. But, you know, in regards to the Cubs, they've kind of gutted their team to a point where they're looking to kind of go in a positive direction. And they have some young players like Darwin Barney, their second baseman, their shortstop, uh, Starlin Castro. Jorge Soler should come up and be their center fielder. And I would think sooner rather than later, you're going to see a guy by the name of Chris Bryant, who the Cubs took with the second overall pick in last year's draft, up at the major league level, level, hitting home runs and playing third base for the Cubs. So I think while the future is bright if you're the Chicago Cubs, and Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer have done a good job in moving a lot of players to get a lot younger and set themselves up where it could be very competitive in years going forward, they're probably going to be set with another top five pick in the draft. Number four overall at this point, they're very close to the White Sox and the Brewers and the Twins who are all kind of in the same category. You could even throw the Padres and the Giants and the Phillies and the, and the Blue Jays and even the Seattle Mariners in there where you could say any one of these teams gets hot, they might be able to get themselves out of the top 10 in the draft this year. But fifth, you got the Milwaukee Brewers. The Milwaukee Brewers have been doomed this year with injuries and Ryan, Stero- Ryan Braun steroid abuse. And there's hoping that there's some good play that can get them out of the top 10. It's a possibility, but let's be honest, the Brewers are essentially running a minor league team out there. Kyle Loesch, who signed the three-year contract with the Brewers, may not be so confident that this team can get themselves back to the postseason next year. But at this moment, the Milwaukee Brewers have the number five pick. The Minnesota Twins, who I've said coming into this baseball season, I thought had the worst team in the American League. I thought had the third worst team in all Major League Baseball. And they've kind of been a, bit, a little bit of a surprise. I've said, I've said all along that this team was not ready to compete. And, you know, you could ask anybody in that area, and they'll, they'll back up what I'm saying. This is a team that's not going to fool anybody by competing for a postseason spot this year or next year. But they've played better than people have thought that they have. And I really do think that, you know, manager Ron Gardenhire has gotten himself back up there when we're talking about the top managers in Major League Baseball. Because this team has shit. This team doesn't have anything on paper. To, to legitimately compete in the American League Central Division. And you look at what's happened, you know, and, and, and I don't think there's enough promise that this team could turn it around in a year or two. I think they're going to need to make some wise moves, some wise draft choices, uh, have their farm system develop to a point where they bring in particularly more pitchers, uh, you know, some of, the, some, of their, uh, some of their position player prospects and Aaron Hicks or Byron Buxton, you know, guys like that are certainly going to make the team better. But the question is, how far are they away from getting to you know a, a, a competitive level? They are too far away. A guy like Joe Maurer is a great guy to build a team around, but unfortunately Joe Maurer is not going to be able to do it by himself. But the Twins at this moment, the sixth overall pick, and are out of the top five, which to me is a little bit of a surprise. Seventh by the time I did this article was a tie between the San Diego Padres and the San Francisco Giants. You, know, you look at one side, the San Diego Padres – we're a developing young team I thought could be a little bit of a sleeper pick 
if some of their position players got the job done. Chase Headley has been terrible this year. That certainly has a lot to do with the Padres struggling. You know, a guy like Jed Jerko is a good player to build around. Yonder Alonso, you look at some of the young pitchers they have, and Andrew Kashner has the opportunity to be a significant pitcher. Uh, you know, Yasmani Grandal can be a very good catcher. He could be an all-star perhaps. So I was looking at all those players coming in and saying that this team could develop itself this year. I'm going to roll it over one year forward and pick them as a surprise team in 2014. But right now they sit with the seventh overall pick, tied with, of all teams, the San Francisco Giants, the two out of three-year World Series champion San Francisco Giants. 60 and 75 at this point. They, you know, I, I think, I, think I, I would not have gone out there and said they had a chance to repeat this year. I would not go out on a limb and say that this team would be able to go out there and shock and, and, and be a legitimate pennant winning team. Um, I, I thought they would struggle for a playoff spot. I thought they were on the outside looking in. But tell me that they, they were not a 500 team. I thought this team could at least finish 80, 80, 81 and 81, maybe win 83, 84 games. I thought their pitching you know, was good enough for them to be able to be a top team in a division. I thought the Dodgers were better. I thought a team like perhaps the Padres or the Colorado Rockies or the San Diego Padres could perform a little better than the San Francisco Giants. But the problem has been everybody has. They have been a bad team this year. Uh, offensively, they have struggled to produce runs just like they have over the last several years. And a team that's centered around Buster Posey and Pablo Sandoval have gotten little else. Angel Pagan's been hurt. Marco Scudero hasn't been himself. They really haven't solved who's playing first base every day for them. Their bullpen has not been that great. It, it's a situation where it's a very surprising team in, in regards to the San Francisco Giants, but they're not the only ones. You know, the teams that are currently ranked ninth and 10th in a tie and would have the ninth and 10th overall pick in the Major League Baseball draft are both teams that I thought would make the playoffs this year. And that's the Philadelphia Phillies and the Toronto Blue Jays. The Toronto Blue Jays story is a little easier to tell because there was just as many critics as there were people praising them for the moves that they made in the offseason. The American League East was known to be very competitive, and it still is. There was going to be a team in that division that was going to drop. I thought it could have been the Baltimore Orioles. I thought it could have been the Tampa Bay Rays. I thought it could have even been the Boston Red Sox. That's why I had faith in the Toronto Blue Jays that I thought the moves they made by themselves were good enough to be a competitive team in this division. I thought one of those five teams would be, would be the cellar dwellers. And it was the Toronto Blue Jays. You know, they've had, they've had some uh, tough luck with some injuries with their pitching staff. Jose Reyes getting hurt pretty early hurt them, and they've had a lot of players that have not gotten the job done. The pitching staff has been terrible. Their starting pitching has not been very good. Josh Johnson hasn't helped them one bit. Brandon Morrow, who was supposed to be their top pitcher, even having guys like Johnson and Mark Burley and R.A. Dickey on the staff, was still good enough to be their ace, and he hasn't pitched very much this year. Ricky Romero hasn't come back. You know, you look at a lot of factors that have led for the Toronto Blue Jays to not be so good. And I could say, listen, most of us aren't surprised that the Blue Jays have not gotten the job done. Though I'm on record and I'll continue to say it, I thought this was a team that could have won the American League Eastern Division. A team that could have won the National League Eastern Division, the Philadelphia Phillies. I thought they had one more run left in them. You look at, you know, the moves to get, you know, the Michael Youngs, the Velman Youngs, the Ben Revere's. We're supposed to be those extra pieces in the offensive lineup. Mike Adams as a setup man. He's been the best eighth inning guy in baseball for the last four seasons. He, he's gotten hurt. Phillies have been a disappointment. 
obviously leads to the firing of manager Charlie Manuel. He's gone. You know, they're moving on. Ryan Sandberg will be the manager the rest of the season. Maybe he comes back next year. Maybe he don't. But the Phillies are obviously in a very, very difficult spot going into the 2014 season. And let's be honest, there's plenty of time to talk about that as well as the New York Mets. But those are the top 10 teams. And if, if the season were to end today, those would be the 10 teams that have their picks protected if they want to go out there and sign a free agent. The other teams, I think there's too much that could happen really between now and the, and the, end, and the end of the season. I think the, the order of this is going to be jockeyed so much, particularly when you get to the top 10. You know, the top 10 teams in baseball, yes, they're all going to make the playoffs more than likely. But after, after the season ends, you know, that's when they're, they're the order of, of what their team is going to be determined by. They're not, you know, their draft picks aren't determined by their record of last season. It's determined by the way, where they finish. The two teams that make the World Series are obviously going to have the last two picks in the draft. So from 21 to 30, I'm not interested in where they rank right now. But in regards to teams that are right on the verge of getting a top 10 spot, you got the Seattle Mariners, the New York Mets, the Los Angeles Angels, the Colorado Rockies. The Washington Nationals, the Kansas City Royals, the Arizona Diamondbacks, the New York Yankees, the Cleveland Indians, and the Baltimore Orioles. And, of course, those are the teams on the outside looking in in regards to a playoff spot. If you're the, the, even the Diamondbacks, if you're the Royals, if you're the Yankees, if you're the Indians, if you're the Baltimore Orioles, any one of those teams would trade a draft pick between 16 and 20 to be in the postseason and not worry about where your draft pick ends up. So I think those are all interesting things to look at. I, obviously, I want to compare it. I want to compare the list uh, of what I have right now and what we'll have uh, you know, in regards to, to, to the end of the season. And it's very curious, and I'm anxious to see how it ends up turning out. Could the New York Mets get themselves a top 10 pick? Well, listen, if they play bad enough, they will. A team like the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, currently on a five-game winning streak, may very well play themselves out of a decent draft pick. And let's understand this. Let's understand the difference between Major League Baseball and other sports. Teams are not going to tank it to get the top pick. I mean, unless you're talking about a Steven Strasburg or a Bryce Harper, I can't imagine a scenario where a team would go out there and intentionally lose games to get a better draft pick. You know, you look at, you know, where, where most of these teams are. And you mentioned the Padres and the Giants and the Phillies and the Blue Jays because I think those are the teams that could very well, with some good play, get themselves out of the top 10 of the draft. I don't think any one of those teams is talking about, well, listen, let's keep losing so we guarantee our top 10 pick. I don't think anybody cares about that. But teams like, teams like the Seattle Mariners, the New York Mets, the Los Angeles Angels like we just talked about, the Colorado Rockies, these, these are all teams that want to finish as strong as possible and make things as positive as possible going into next season. And I think the way that it's set up, you're looking at teams that are just looking to finish strong. I don't think there's any team that's really on an absolute tank job. I mean, the Phillies have struggled, yes. The Blue Jays have struggled. You know, teams like Seattle and Colorado have had some hard times over a significant enough period of time. But I don't think any of these teams are like, hey, who cares? Let's just go out there and play some baseball. I don't care if we win or lose. All these teams want to finish as strong as they possibly can. And a team, you know, like my favorite team, the New York Mets, I, I think the last thing on their mind is talking about, wow, you know, it would be great if we had the number 10 overall pick because then we could sign any free agent we want and lose our second-round draft pick and up instead of losing a first-round draft pick. Because how did that work out for the Mets last year? You know, because of Mark Appel not signing with the Pittsburgh Pirates when he was drafted seventh overall, 
the New York Mets, who had the number 10 overall pick, got their pick pushed to 11, and it ended up costing them a chance to sign Michael Bourne. Now, if Major League Baseball ruled on it quick enough, and I don't think they were in any hurry because it wasn't that big of a deal to them, if they ruled quick enough, maybe the Mets could have had Michael Bourne. Yeah, listen, I don't care that much whether the Mets signed Michael Bourne or not. I think he'd be a good player. He would have been an asset to this team. The team could have performed a little bit better. But but I'm not so uh, upset over the fact that the Mets didn't sign Michael Bourne. But, you know, in regards to the 10th overall pick or the 9th overall pick, I don't think we're going to get into a situation where teams are going to start thinking about that in regards to the way they finish the season. These are the, all these teams do have enough pride that they want to finish strong enough. Um, I think you know a team like the San Francisco Giants may say, "Hey, listen, this isn't our year, but let's get ourselves in a position where we can finish strong enough that we could get back on the saddle." The Giants, the Phillies, the Blue Jays, uh, you know, even the San Diego Padres would all like to get themselves in a position where they can compete next year and consider themselves potential wild card contending teams as re- in regards to just being a simple rebuilding team that's hoping that they get a very good top 10 draft pick. To, to me, that I, don't, I just don't think it matters enough in regards to those things. And I, and I, think, I just think you look at all these teams and you look at, you know, unless you're, unless you're an absolute bum of a team, and that's the Houston Astros, that's the Miami Marlins, those are teams that right now are not in a position to compete next year and probably the year after. So you're looking, you're looking at two situations where teams are, are, not, are not in a position that they can compete within the next couple of years. There's no surprise that they have the two worst records in Major League Baseball. I mean, I think they could have probably taken some, uh, some, some solidarity in the fact that they probably were going to have one of the top two picks in next year's draft. But next year's draft happens during next season. It's not a situation where you know they're waiting for the offseason to see what kind of players they're going to add and what kind of impact they're going to have at the major league level. You know, yes, every now and then a a star comes up. You know, Ken Griffey Jr. comes up there to be the number one overall pick, and Alex Rodriguez is there to be the number one overall pick. A Steven Strasburg or Bryce Harper, but it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes you end up taking a guy like a Brian Taylor who has a great arm, but ends up not becoming a major league player. And that's the chance that you have to take in regards to a lot of these picks. And listen, you could be happy about having a top draft choice. I'll tell you, the happiness over having that draft choice wears off pretty quick once they're in the major leagues or once they're in the minor leagues working their way up, once they're going up against all that other competition in regards to major league baseball. Once all that comes up, then where they're drafted means nothing. Look at Mike Trout, who was taken at the end of the first round uh, of the draft and what kind of star he's become. I don't think the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim thought they drafted a star when they brought in Mike Trout. They knew he was going to be a pretty good player. They thought he could be a pretty good player, but I don't think they thought he would be a top-five player in Major League Baseball in three years. Look at Mike Piazza, the, the round that he was drafted in. You know, whether you think he was artificially enhanced or not, he still became a very big player and a huge value to the Los Angeles Dodgers when he was taken as late as he was in major league in a major league draft. So once again, the major league draft order probably means little in regards to the other sports in in, in the world. But uh, that that is your top ten now if the season ended today. But I want to thank Bill Naharadney for being part of me in this first hour. Another hour of the Pass Ball Show coming up right here on the MTR Radio Network, America's radio station.